From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. As much as I love the cooking and eating that Thanksgiving brings, I think the best part of the holiday may be permission to do nothing for the long weekend that follows. If curling up on the couch in front of your TV is part of your plan this weekend, we have some ideas for what to watch. You may have seen the first season of High in the Hog, how African-American cuisine transformed America when it debuted in 2021. The series, which is based on a book by Dr. Jessica B. Harris, won a Peabody Award. Producers Fabian Toback and Karis Jagger return with four new episodes and continue the story of how Black Hands in the Pot influenced cuisine across the country. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Evan. This is Fabian Toback. Thank you so much for having us, Evan. This is Karis Jagger. I mean, what stellar work you've done for this second season. Kudos. We're so thrilled that you enjoyed the show. Let's start in New Orleans, where you look at the blended cultures of Creole cooking. How does Dr. J, as the host Stephen Satterfield affectionately refers to Harris, explain what makes the cuisine so special and makes it one of the hemisphere's culinary meccas? This is Karis. I think that the most incredible thing about New Orleans is that it really is America's one city that really has a blend of French, Spanish, African, and indigenous cuisine that is all uh, melded together. And Serenye, who is who is the chef from Dakarnola, really starts the show off by by reminding us how um, the connection is is really rooted in African cuisine and Creole cuisine. How many links there are to it. There was a really interesting part in the conversation where those sitting around the table uh, started to talk about how French technique is misattributed as a major influence of the city's food. They're comparing bouillabaisse, but we don't think about the African origins of, of something like bouillabaisse. Yeah, it was really fascinating and, and a wonderful conversation. And and I just have to shout out the visual richness of of this season really struck me. And and when they are all sitting and being served the food, and this is true throughout every episode, oh my gosh, you really want to be able to eat that food. It just leaps off the plate. Jerry Henry is absolutely amazing, and he's brought so much beauty to to this season as well as the last one. I particularly found Stephen's conversation with Elvin Shields, a former mechanical engineer who grew up as a sharecropper, especially revealing and moving. Can you describe his early um, experiences growing up? Really, it was such a shocking testimony. Well, sharecropping is was just like a, a really awful thing. I mean, after emancipation, people were released or free to go, um, didn't have some places that they could go. So, you know, in turn, it was just such an unjust system because here these people were working on these plantations where they were once enslaved 
And then, you know, having to purchase tools to do the job. You know, many of the times they would make, end up making less money and, and sometimes being in debt. But as Elvin says, you know, he's taking back the word plantation because that was his home. And, and even if it was a small percentage, it was something that they had ownership of. It is quite moving. It's difficult. It's a difficult scene as well. But you really hear the sort of uh, pride that he has, but also that it was very difficult and hard. Yeah, the way he kind of explains to Stephen, who has a traumatic reaction to the word yeah. um, plantation, the way Mr. Shields explains how he basically feels that everything created by by plantations were created by enslaved people. The beauty, the food, and they should own the positive parts of that. Yes. Yeah, I think Elvin Shields speaks about how his ancestors lived and died there and they created the first Black community in that place. And so, you know, take it as our own word and, and make it our own and own it. And then we we moved to the path um, of the unknown as people started to leave the South when mechanization came in to plantations and the Great Migration began. Talk a little bit about George Pullman, who capitalized on the Black workforce during that time, and Stephen's relationship to, to it. So we learned that Stephen's grandfather was a Pullman Porter and George Pullman wanted to take newly uh, emancipated slaves as Pullman porters because he wanted to create this train experience that was reminiscent of the time of slavery. So, you know, you can imagine that poorly treated Pullman porters survived on like very low wages and mostly tips, but then it also enabled a whole black middle class to come out of this train travel and was very important in creating the first black union. So while there there was a lot of like hardship, it also created incredible wealth. And we were very fortunate to have a Pullman Porter speaking with us who has since passed, but it was beautiful to have that firsthand experience and get to hear his very moving story. Yeah, it was quite wonderful when Satterfield sits across from these two men, one the son of a Pullman porter, the other a man who who was, I believe, 100 at the time when he was being interviewed. And Stephen, whose grandfather, who he never met, you could see that he saw him in these two in these two men who were telling stories. And I loved how he made the link to being the person he is in terms of someone who enjoys travel and expanding his worldview and how that was a part of being a a Pullman porter. And with all the negatives, they still had this entree into a larger world because of the nature of the train. Absolutely. And it's what was really striking and in this season is that Stephen, you know, we unearth more of his own personal story and his connection 
to these events, you know, whether it's uh, the Pullman Porter or not to get ahead of ourselves, but through the Helen Renaissance where we find out. I'm not sure if it's the same grandfather, but another one who uh, is a moonshiner. <laughs> so interesting. It's, 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 and of course, going to his hometown of Atlanta. So so, so let's talk about Harlem and, and the Renaissance and Alexander Smalls, a, a, pres- oh. a present day chef and former aspiring opera singer who sort of makes a connection between the general creativity of the Harlem Renaissance and food and how there was this sort of flowing back and forth and food was like the punctuation. Well, food is always the punctuation in any gathering, <laughs> I feel, you know, and definitely he makes that point. I mean, Alexander Smalls, his home where he entertains, basically, if you're seated at his table, you've got a coveted spot you know, his home is covered with just like all these artifacts and from his time of being an opera singer, he also had opened a restaurant called Cafe Beulah and was also the owner of uh, Cecil's up in Harlem and has also written several books. So it's really warm to see their interaction. Yeah, there's so much affection between the two of them. And yeah. um, and I love when Smalls says, I realized I couldn't have a seat at the table unless I owned the table, like acknowledging food as currency. Absolutely. And he even, you know, as an opera singer, he had realized he had hit that glass ceiling. But I think, you know, there's a lots of frustration that a lot of, you know, African-Americans feel. It's like, where do I go? How can I move? I know I'm capable of so much more and there's not that opportunity. So yes, that's what he did. He owned a restaurant. He opened a restaurant because there he realized he could go further uh, and further his success and his abilities. So let's let's move to the the um the episode called the defiance which focuses on the civil rights movement and and sort of goes into how the movement was funded by food by so many small entrepreneurs. You you mentioned that Atlanta is Stephen Satterfield's hometown. Could you talk about um that relationship between food and the movement? I think that um, Stephen says that, you know, food has an incredibly deep connection to this civil rights movement. We, we look at Georgia Gilmore, who, who is a, a chef who funded the movement with her Club from Nowhere that Cheryl Day speaks about so beautifully in, in episode three. Um, and then we also sit down with three former student activists who who planned and executed a, a civil rights operation to desegregate restaurants in Atlanta. And I think uh, Stephen's conversation with them at Pascal's, which was another famous restaurant during the civil rights movement that was a place where people could congregate to plan, was an incredibly moving scene. And then um, the the last episode is is called Feeding the Culture. There's a beat about the Black Panthers and the free breakfast program they created, which has been so powerful and still lives on today. Um, who are the Black food activists that should be on our radar today? 
in our episode, we have Nia Lee, who does the Stormy Supper Club, which is, you know, creating a Black queer community. And she's amazing. There's also Devon Francis, who's doing that with the Yardy World in New York City. He's also Bon Appetit video host. Um, Ghetto Gastro is doing a lot of work just in terms of their unapologetic approach to elevating black cuisine and conversation around it. I wanted to just mention Karen Washington because she's been turning empty lots into community gardens and she is really working to shift the food justice conversation. So I would like to include her in people to look out for and support. Absolutely. And also KJ Kearney, who does Black Food Fridays. Well, I can't emphasize enough how absolutely gorgeous this season is. And it's so wonderful to see that intensely rich visualization of cuisine being put to use to lift up African-American cuisine and culture in America. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, Evan. Yeah, it means a lot. Thank you. I've been joined by producers Fabian Toback and Karis Jagger. The four-episode second season of their project, High in the Hog, is now streaming on Netflix. Coming up, we've got another idea for what to stream this holiday weekend. If you love food, dark comedy, and thrillers, this next pick is for you. Stay close. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Revenge is a dish best served cold, but when Julian Slowick, the renowned chef played by Rafe Fiennes in The Menu, decides to exact revenge on both his acolytes and critics, he turns up the heat in entirely unexpected ways. Seth Reese and Will Tracy are the screenwriters behind the new culinary satire. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, how are you? Hello. Thanks for having us. Before we dig in, so to speak, let's meet Chef Julian. Here's a clip of him introducing the diners to his restaurant. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Hawthorne. I'm Julian Slowick, and tonight it'll be our pleasure to feed you. The curtain rises. Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, Salt, sugar, protein, bacteria, fungi, various plants and animals, and at times entire ecosystems. But I have to beg of you one thing. It's just one. Do not eat. Taste. Savor. Relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful. Do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. So what prompted the two of you to write a screenplay about class disparity based in a 12-person destination restaurant? I think probably we weren't thinking necessarily about even the theme of class disparity uh, at the outset, I think we just 
thought that that would be a very useful and effective way to structure a film like a tasting menu so that we actually use title cards throughout the film for the courses and you're kind of brought through the movie like a menu, course one, course two, all the way through to dessert. And it felt as though that would be a, a, a way to take a, I guess, a satirical precinct or location, this dining room, this sort of very contained space. And with each course, you can kind of ratchet up the tension and also kind of ratchet up the comic surprise because each course is sort of reacting to the last course. And then quite naturally, I think, through the characters that we populated that room with, some of those themes of class and consumerism and art and privilege made their way in because it's, you know, it's just a very high priced room. Obviously, the people who go to this restaurant, they would have to be rich. But I think what Will and I were very interested in is not so much tearing down the rich, but just sort of tearing down the concept of entitlement. And in our society, you know, the endless consumption of content. I think we as a society consume and consume and consume and consume and we inhale and consume and we don't really take the time to think about who is providing us the content that we're consuming. But then on the flip side, I think Will and I also wanted to sort of talk about the people who are providing that content, especially in terms of the chef, that this is his vocation. This is what he's chosen to do. So you're certainly going to ultimately serve people who are not going to appreciate your content as much as you would like them to appreciate that. But they all sort of feed into each other and need each other in this sort of symbiotic relationship that's ultimately unhealthy and is never-ending. Clearly, the two of you have been exposed to these types of multi-course, sometimes endless meals. Were there any in particular that you based the menu on? There was a, a, a restaurant on a kind of a, an island that I went to when I was on my honeymoon in, in Norway with my wife. And there's a kind of a seafood restaurant on an island that you have to take a boat to. And so it made me feel quite claustrophobic to be stuck on an island in, in, uh, in the middle of the ocean in, in, in Norway for four hours. And that just seemed like a good location for a story. But uh, that restaurant was not of the kind of modernist exclusivity that you see in the film. For that type of restaurant, I think, you know, some obvious but still very vivid examples would be places like Alinea, uh, Noma, El Bui. But we also wanted to kind of take the modernist tasting menu experience, highly foraged, highly local, highly avant-garde food of those restaurants and kind of find, not copy them so much, but kind of try to create our own unique culture within this restaurant and try to create a chef who didn't really feel like Adria or Ackett's or, or Rene Redzepi, but really felt like a very specific and new creation. This is written from a place of love for these places also. I mean, it's, for us, a sort of balance of the magic, 50% magic of these places and 50% the bull of these places because we have a deep amount of respect for all the chefs that Will just mentioned. And we do think they're geniuses. And, you know, especially in, in terms of Alinea, you know, Ackett says he's a, he's a storyteller and actually he, he does do it quite well. I, I don't want to give any spoilers but I'm curious about the 
the tortilla course. <laughs> and I, I know that you collaborated with Dominique Crenn, who was the culinary consultant on the movie. Yes. But this idea of printing pointed illustrations on each tortilla that were extremely personal to the guest. I mean, just tell me a little bit about the conversation that the two of you had in coming up with that. Well, I, that, that is actually based on a specific thing that I saw, not in person, but, but, um, but read about. There's a, um, actually a former Microsoft executive who left Microsoft to follow his new passion, which was highly modernist molecular cuisine. His name is Nathan Mirvold, and he wrote this sort of Bible on what is called modernist food. And one of his techniques that he had... Um, pioneered was the ability to laser print images on food surfaces. So we just kind of took that idea of like, okay, if we have this ability to print something on a tortilla, what's on there? And also, how, and how can we use that to reveal character? So it's kind of a, I guess, a sort of stealthy way of character exposition. Right, in two ways, because it's exposition and you know the audience is getting exposition in terms of who the diners are, but they're also getting exposition in terms of how methodically and meticulously the chef has planned this evening. One of the things that really struck me about this, um, about this movie in general, I mean, you know, I've been, I've had this show called Good Food on an NPR station for more than 25 years. And I've watched as food has gone from a completely analog experience of ingestion with tradition bound into it and ritual that's attached to a lot of tradition to becoming entertainment mm. and how many of these or not many but some of these kinds of meals um, that the plot comes from are made up of rituals that can be completely hollow in the sense yeah. that they're just made up from the mind of the, the chef. So, I, I mean, I, I just was, I thought it was just extraordinary in, in that context that there's a moment where there's a big enough audience that a movie like this could be made. And I'm wondering who you see the audience as being. Well, I mean, I, hopefully, I, I think our aim was to write a movie that um, whether you've worked in a kitchen like that, or if you're someone who loves going to restaurants like that, or if you're the world's biggest skeptic of restaurants like that, that all of those people would be able to enjoy the movie equally, and all, every, all those people would be able to see someone in the film who they relate to in some way. As Seth said, I mean, yeah, we, we both, it's both kind of a, a, um, a love letter to that type of restaurant and also a, a, a poisoned love letter to that type of restaurant. And, you know, I've always liked this phrase, this French phrase that um, you never grow old at the dinner table. And certainly there are, <laughs> there are tasting menu experiences that are so long and punishing that you really can hear yourself growing older <laughs> while you're sitting there. So, I, you know, it's, so it's somewhat of a takedown of that type of restaurant while also recognizing that at their best, there is something truly transporting about 
that type of food that, with no shame, aspires to art. Um, and who's to say that it isn't? Do you think you'll need to start making reservations under pseudonyms at fine dining restaurants <laughs> no, now? No, no, and I'll, and I'll answer this. Yeah. I, no, I, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Nicholas Holt or Ray Fines or anyone will walk into a restaurant and they'll be seated. No problem. No problem. Will and I will be like on our Resi app. Uh, hoping for notifications <laughs> that like from and like and then we're just gonna like I guess we'll do the the table for two at ten forty five p.m. Fine. <laughs> it's like we we wrote the stupid thing so that we could get free food and I don't think it's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, we are two very hungry individuals, and we were just trying to write our way out of a problem, and we failed. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I've seen the movie twice, and um, oh, great! Thank you, thank you. And, and I loved it. Oh, that's thank very you. kind. That's Seth Reese and Will Tracy, the screenwriters of Searchlight Pictures, The Menu. If you're like me, you're deep into leftovers right now. In a minute, we've got ideas for what to do with all the random bits and bobs in your refrigerator so that nothing goes to waste. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleinman. Often, when we discuss guilt in the kitchen, it's in the guise of eating, like, I shouldn't have had that extra slice of pie. Why did I just eat a hunk of cheese for dinner? But the guilt that comes from food waste perhaps should produce greater shame. With nearly 40% of purchased food being thrown out, transforming leftovers, just like composting, needs to be a collective effort. One of my favorite authors, Tamar Adler, gives us guidance and inspiration to make every meal everlasting. I get a sense that you really enjoy the process of transformation, turning something into something else. I think that's true. I think I, I think I far prefer that to starting from square one. But I think I think it's actually an impulse that a lot of us share because I, I even think about how hard it is when you're looking at a blank sheet of paper. How much harder that is than when you have something to edit. The hardest thing is starting. And once you're going, momentum is so helpful. And also you can see where you want to make changes. And so I know that about myself as a writer, like I just have to get something on screen or on the page. And I feel it as a cook too. I do, it's so much more pleasurable and honestly easier to start with, okay, I have this, you know, I have this batch of leftover rice. I see I have those herbs. I have a few peanuts left in here. You know, it's sort of like constraints breed creativity, I think. I absolutely agree. So are there some basic staples that it's always good to have on hand if we start to cook in this style of transformation rather than starting from scratch? Yes, definitely. Um, but, you know, even within what I think is really important to have, there, there's so much room for for variation. I am an olive oil devotee. So I always... If I'm going to have one oil, it's olive oil. And having one good 
flavored finishing oil is really important because it literally can transform, you know, yesterday's leftover vegetables or God, even a piece of, you know, toast, which is just stale bread into something that really makes you sort of stop and notice. You need acid. So that can be, that can be anything that can be red wine vinegar or a lemon, which in California, it can, you know, definitely be in New York. I often find myself citrusless. It could also be just plain distilled white vinegar, just anything that, that lends acidity to food. You know how it wakes you up when you have something acidic? I feel like it does the same to the food. It's like a little clap telling you to wake up. And uh, salt is essential. And then I think texture is really important. But again, there's a really wide range. Herbs are wonderful, really basic herbs like parsley, cilantro, uh, mint, dill. But if you don't, if you don't have herbs, that could be chopped toasted nuts, or it could just be breadcrumbs, just something to kind of like add a dimension to a food that wasn't there before. And I think spice works similarly to both texture and acid and like in the, in the kind of wake up capacity. So I really love all of the world's various chili oils and uh, spicy pickles and stuff like that. Um, okay, so I feel like we should do a kind of, not necessarily a speed round, but I'm going to, um, I'm just going to call out some um, leftover bits for which you have a solution. Often I find that I have a head of cauliflower that's gotten a bit old. First of all, I just want to say when something starts to get old, cook it. You know which direction, which direction it's headed, right? It's headed south. Pair off anything that's like scary looking, cut it up and roast it. And I say roast instead of boil, not because it's better, but because when you roast something, it gets caramelized and then you won't see any like slightly tannish bits. But take off anything that's liquefying and immediately cook it. And so that's a great sort of step one. So after we roast it, then what would you do? Um, well, after you roast it, you could certainly eat it just like that. Another thing I love to do with um, anything that's getting old and faded is add a lot of good fat to it because it kind of needs it. You know, I think brand new, beautiful cauliflower doesn't necessarily need a rich, cheesy sauce, although it could certainly have one. But, you know, cauliflower that's kind of like in need of assistance is a great place to make a like a combination of uh, cream and cheese. You could add a little flour if you want and then bake into a gratin. That's one wonderful thing to do. Another would be to make, just to toss it in vinaigrette with some, um, some parsley or another herb. Essentially just give it what it's lacking intrinsically, you know, richness and, and life. Um, so all of us have the experience of having greens wilt before we get to them. Um, so often that green is arugula. What can we do with wilted arugula? Um, I really, really like arugula pesto. And once it's pestoified, you don't know that it's been wilted. Which you can you can use a basil pesto recipe and substitute arugula, or you can do a combination of arugula and basil. Another really great thing to do is just start thinking of it as an herb. Once you cut something across its um, grain, so like across the you know the fibers that go up and down, you know it stops being quite so wil wilty, and then immediately 
use it as an herb. So if you're making a pasta sauce, put it in. If you're making a frittata, put it in. If you're making scrambled eggs, put it in. As soon as you notice that it doesn't look the way you had planned for it to look, use it. Prioritize it. Don't like shove it off to the back, but go, okay, today's your day. So let's talk about avocado. Sometimes we'll get an avocado where we have great hopes for it, but we open it up and it just is not good or overripe. Yeah, I was worried about this one because I, until I was working on this book, I had not found anything that I could make with like those gross brown overripe avocados. Um, And then I remembered that when I was traveling in Vietnam, like 20 years ago, there was a breakfast shake that I used to get in Hanoi that was um, sweetened condensed milk, avocado, and I think just ice. Maybe they also put in milk. I'm not, I I don't recall right now. Um, And I tried making that with overripe avocado and it totally works. You put it in a blender so that weird fibrousness disappears and you put the avocado in the bottom and then it's sweetened condensed milk, which, you know, makes everything delicious and ice. And it completely makes the most, or the second most delicious breakfast shake. I think the most delicious one is in Hanoi, but I loved that I found this use and now I get to have this amazing shake whenever I have an overripe avocado. I love that. Um, So let's talk a bit about takeaway, things that we get and we bring home and maybe we don't finish. Um, French fries, which it seems weird that you wouldn't finish fries, but that does happen. And then maybe they're kind of petrified and incredibly sad. Oh my God. It really is so sad. Like the difference between a fresh French fry and an overnight refrigerated French fry. It's such a huge distance to fall. And I I found two things to do with these. They usually exist in my house because my son doesn't finish his French fries. And I've eaten mine and what I wanted of his, but then I can't, I won't let them get thrown out. So I bring them home. And Cal Peternell has a really great French fry frittata in his most recent book, which is called, I think, Burnt Toast and Other Kitchen Disasters. And I had a weirdly amazing, I mean, I guess it wasn't luck because I tried a few different things, but mashing them with a lot of cream and cooked garlic produced a super delicious, creamy mash. Um, And I was able to actually get rid of that weird refrigerator smell, which I think is like, I mean, it's with the smell and the texture that's so awful about leftover French fries. But um, I was paying very close attention to see if any whiff of that was left and it completely disappears. Wow. So when I was traveling in Italy um, a couple years ago, I had um, this amazing onion parmigiana. And when I came home, I got takeaway of a hamburger and some onion rings. And I had, there were so many rings that I couldn't finish them. And I ended up using them for a parmigiana. How do you use yours? Oh, that sounds so good. Was it great? It was great. <laughs> it was great. So they, they do reheat to crisp and they don't get a weird, they're not like potatoes um, where they get a weird smell. So you can just reheat them um, and they'll, they'll end up pretty crisp. But I love them in, this is going to sound really weird, but um, in miso soup. I'm so glad you said soup because I also have cut them up and put them in soup. 
It's so great. <laughs> it's really great. I've also been guilty of crisping them and putting them in a sandwich. Oh, excellent. Excellent rehabilitation. Yes. This has been so much fun, Tamar. Thank you. It's a marvelous book. Thank you. I love, I love talking to you. So this has been a real treat. That's Tamar Adler. She's the James Beard and IACP award-winning author. Her latest work, The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, Leftovers A to Z, offers more than 1,500 recipes for cooking using everything from cherry stems and broken candy canes to overcooked beans and bacon fat. This is a compendium to keep at your elbow each time you make a meal. It might make the contents of your fridge more manageable too. Coming up, meet the maker behind Sunset Cultures, a kombucha producer using locally sourced ingredients with flavor combos you've never seen before. Strawberry fennel flour, grapefruit and rice. We take you into the mind of the creator next. Welcome back to Good Food. LA's new mandatory composting law has us all scrutinizing our food waste a little more closely. Yes, we are what we eat, but like it or not, we also see ourselves in what we waste. Balo Orozco learned this long ago. Working in restaurants and catering jobs, he saw a lot of food land in the bin. And as he became closer with farmers, he realized that they had pounds, sometimes tons of produce that was too ugly or too ripe to make it to market. With his line of Sunset Cultures kombucha and pantry products, Balo is trying to save the fruit, pay the farmer, and give us something delicious too. Hi. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for, for joining us. Before, before you were fermenting gallons of kombucha you were cooking, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and, and where you learned to cook. Uh, I'm from Mexico. I grew up in Guadalajara, Jalisco, and I lived there until when I was 19. I went to culinary school there, and I was working in sushi restaurants and a couple of sushi restaurants and in an Italian restaurant. Then from there, I moved to the Caribbean in Tulum. So I was working at Harwood, running this place for about five years. I mean, why don't you describe Harwood so people get an idea? Yeah, so Harwood was the first year and a half that I was working there. Actually, they had only six months open when I started working there. So we were like fishing for the restaurant. It was really fun and beautiful and inspiring. It's something that I really never did before, you know. So that was super special. And as the restaurant gets bigger, you know, like we started getting fish from fishermen and always like that, like pretty sustainable practices. I love that place because... We never use gas, barely electricity for like a small, tiny freezer that we have run by a solar panel. And so everything was fire. Everything, we always cook everything in a, on a grill or in the oven. So that was a lot of fun. And then here in the States, you were with Gabriela Camara at Cala in San Francisco, and you were the opening chef at Onda in Santa Monica in 2019. What was your aha moment for Sunset Cultures? You know, so I always worked in restaurants 
and I'm lucky to to work with people that like some people in restaurants that always care about like the ways. So when we were working at this restaurant, it was kind of like a fun thing for us as the chefs because it was like a set menu. So it was like a fun thing for us to do that like we'll just call the butcher and say like, hey, what do you have the most? What's what you're not selling? So it's always like pig's head or trotters or something. So it was like a lot of fun to do something with it. That was like very inspiring. Also, like every time we will come from the farmer's market and, you know, there's like not a lot of space in the walk-in restaurant. So like you have to like, you get like 50 pounds of cauliflower, you have to remove the bottom. So we start getting a lot. So then we start making kimchi out of it. So we start then we start making a lot of pickles and preserves and stuff. So that was a lot of fun. As I'm getting closer to farmers, like now, like closer relationships with them, I start visiting their farm when we close on the. That's when we realized that there was like more than what we imagined the amount of ways of food that there is out there. Like you see. When the farmer has a crate on there in the in the stand, kind of like a few pounds of it, like throwing away, but like that just what made it there. Like there's a lot more, and not necessarily that is bad or seconds or something. It's just like sometimes a good season for produce doesn't mean that they're gonna sell it all. For example, Murray's Steve Murray from uh, Murray Farm. He's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a lot, a lot of Buddhism extra. There's a lot in trees and I know I'm not going to sell it. So I'm not really buying like seconds. I'm trying to buy little by little instead of just getting a thousand or two thousand pounds at once. And ideally, I use this for the whole year. Wow. So your flavors are notably amazing. Um, they're not your run-of-the-mill kombucha flavors. For example, you have strawberry fennel flour, mandarin carrot, grapefruit and rice. But this process that you have of sourcing is so interesting. When a farmer calls you and says, hey, I have a ton of persimmons, or in this case, Buddha's hand, once you have it, how do you start prepping it in a way to minimize the waste you create and get the fruit ready for the preparations you're going to use it for? For the Buddha's hand, what we do is we slice it very thin. And we mix it with sugar. Kind of like one-to-one sugar than the weight of the Buddha's hand. And start licking all the flavor. Right, you start extracting all the flavors called oleo. So about two days later, you don't see more sugar, you just see liquid. So so it's all this flavor that is the sugar has been extracting from the Buddha's hand. We like to ferment this part a little bit, maybe for like about a week. Then we portion it, we freeze it, and then we use it as we need. Your flavors are so unusual and they work so well. You know, I've had unusual flavor combinations and products before and they kind of remind me of eating potpourri or some sort of weird bath (laughs) aromatherapy. But yours are always so delicious. How do you conceive of them? Like grapefruit and rice, for example. 
With grapefruit and rice, we, during the pandemic, we were listening to Ototo had this like sake school. And I remember, I think it was every Tuesday, just for like an hour, and we were listening to Courtney just talking about how people use the rice to make this delicious drink. And we were like, okay, maybe we can make something with rice. We know Robin from Coda Farm. So we started getting her rice. We tried a few times until I feel like we nailed it. And the, the grapefruit flavor came out because when you make koji, a lot of the flavor that you get is like fruity, citrus. To me, it's like a lot of uh, grapefruit. So we just say like, oh, let's try grapefruit. And it was delicious. We also made it with a chirimoya and cardamom that was insane, delicious, super expensive, but <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Does the mother itself take on flavor? Like if you were to share a piece of your strawberry fennel flower mother with me, would my kombucha taste like strawberry and fennel flowers? Oh, yes. You even might see a lot of like fennel flowers on the mother. Wow. And it carries flavor. So actually, we obviously we have like two to three scobies per flavor because we stagger the batches. So we don't mix the scobies for other flavors, really. So you have like an archive of flavored scobies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so yeah. amazing. That's so amazing. Well, it's yeah. been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. Thank you so much. That was Balo Orozco. We've been talking about the innovative kombuchas and pantry products he makes under the name Sunset Cultures. We've got a link on our website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. Every chef knows that when you waste food, you're throwing away your raw materials, your cash down the drain. But on average, American household of four wastes about $30 of food every week. Multiply that by the population and we're wasting roughly $400 billion of food a year or 40% of the food that's produced here in the U.S. With work to be done in every level of the food chain, what can we do at home? Sisters Margaret and Irene Lee have suggestions for all of the wilted, shriveled, about to expire, or only needed a tablespoon for the recipe ingredients to help reduce food waste in your kitchen. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I really, really like this book so much. And I think it's because the illustrations make it much easier to understand how to fix this issue that all of us have that is just so frustrating. (laughs) It's very frustrating when you go to your refrigerator and you see something that's on its way out and you just don't know what to do. This is Margaret. And yes, so many people 
open up a fridge full of food and it's hard to figure out what to do with it. And we loved the idea of having a cookbook with illustrations rather than photographs. So it felt like you had more flexible options for figuring out what to do with your food rather than working with one specific photo of what it should look like. So let's talk about how you organize the refrigerator to avoid waste. I I am finding more and more that the vegetable bin is just a wasteland. (laughs) (laughs) You put stuff in there and it's either too full or too empty. And when it's too full, it's so easy to just not see things. This is Margaret, and I will add both from our restaurant experience, but also our personal experience that we have absolutely suffered from the same thing of things just getting lost in your refrigerator. And Irene brought the great idea from our restaurant of putting something called an eat me first box in the refrigerator. And the idea is that you have this little container of whatever kind you like, and you put in the items that need to be used up sooner or that you have a half of, say, a half of a lemon that you've cut for your meal and then you stash the other half in the fridge. I used to have, you know, moldy lemons all over the back of my fridge because I never knew where they were and I would just cut open another lemon. And now I put them in the eat me first box so I know exactly where to go to find the things that need to be used up first. And I try to keep it at eye level and towards the front of the fridge and that really helps me make sure that I'm, you know, actually using up the things that I have purchased. So I, I would love if we could talk about the fridge door dressing, which I really, really like. Many of us, if we don't use store-bought dressings, tend to rely on the same recipes over and over and over again. And yet, yes, this refrigerator door is just filled with condiments and, and things yes. to <laughs> inform a dressing, which is in and of itself a condiment. So um, give us some advice. This is Margaret, and I have a tendency to buy condiments um, when I really have a fridge already full of condiments. Um, but it's great because they add so much flavor and uh, like really boost up so many different foods. And what is great is that you can then use them in so many different ways, uh, sometimes in unexpected ways. And it's also a great way if you have a little last bit of mustard or jam or honey, and it's kind of clinging to the inside of the jar, and you want to get it out. then making a dressing inside the jar and then shaking it is the perfect way to use up that last little bit. That's really smart. And and you have have advice for um, sort of these different flavor profiles of dressings. You, You have a base and then you have recommendations for something a little sweet, a little tangy and creamy, a little nutty and creamy, or a little salty and umami. Maybe take us through just a couple of those ideas. This is Margaret, and I am always trying to get my kids to eat salad. Um, I have two children who are four and eight and kind of notorious greens haters like uh, many children out there. And I realized that my daughter will eat a salad if there's fruit in it. And it really helps to have a sweet dressing. So that's when I started making dressings out of jam. And especially if there is a little bit of jelly left in the jar, since we eat a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, then putting the oil and vinegar into the jam jar is a great way to get the kids involved because then they like to shake it themselves too. And it makes my daughter eat a salad, which is always a good surprise. What foods do you save and freeze? I'm always afraid to do this because, boy, if something languishes in the crisper, 
in the freezer, <laughs> I feel like it just is even worse. This is Irene. We like to call um, the freezer a, a magical time machine. Um, it, it can buy you time on an item that you know you aren't going to use up um, or that is maybe on its last legs. And we advocate for good labeling in the freezer um, since sometimes it's hard to tell what things are when they're frozen. And we also want to make sure people know that you can really freeze just about anything, especially if you're willing to take a gamble on the the texture. Um, for example, we learned in the writing of this book that you can freeze lemons. Um, you aren't going to get the exact same texture of the flesh, but you can still get the zest. You can still get the juice. And so if like me, you can't resist buying the bulk bag of lemons at the grocery store instead of the one that you really need, you can throw half of them straight into the freezer um, if you know you're not going to use them, but you might want them in another two or three weeks. I also want to add that another tidbit I learned during the making of this book is the freezing of spinach, um, straw, just straight in the bag. Uh, this is our friend learned this from a spinach farmer at the farmer's market that you can just shove your uncooked spinach into the freezer and you don't want to eat it raw afterwards. It's not going to be good in a spinach salad, but for soup or for sauteing, you can just pull the frozen spinach straight out and cook it. And so it's really nice when you have bought this bag of baby spinach and you know, you've been eating spinach salad for a few days and then you know you're not going to get to the rest of it before it goes bad, you just shove it straight in the freezer. What are some of the items that we should have in our pantries that kind of inform the things that are going to go to waste, like the building blocks of dishes that mm. if we have them, we will always be able to utilize something that is about to go? If you have pasta, you can always throw in what you've got. We have a recipe called anything in the kitchen pasta. We've got a sort of toss in what you want, fried rice. We also love eggs because, you know, of course, there's always omelets and scrambled eggs, but frittatas can take any vegetable that you've got, any cheese, any deli meats, any odds and ends. It can take the random condiments that you bought, like the pickles or the olives, the sauces. The frittatas are great for all of those. I also love keeping puff pastry in the freezer. Um, I know it's not a pantry item, but it really kind of is a secret weapon because it allows you to turn anything into something that feels a little bit fancy. Um, so if you have, you know, leftovers or odds and ends and you throw them into a, a freeform puff pastry tart, um, all of a sudden your, your leftovers feel a little bit franche. Um, and so that is a kind of a neat party trick um, that allows you to, to make your leftovers feel a little sexy again. I think that all of us have found ourselves in a situation where we need one tablespoon of a fresh herb and we end up with an entire bunch. Um, I'm looking, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you, cilantro. <laughs> I just feel like cilantro is just <laughs> like, I need a recipe for cilantro because I always have some dying in the fridge somewhere. How do you use excess herbs in other recipes? So another favorite dish of mine from the book to use up herbs is the herby green rice dish. And it's so nice because it's basically this one pot meal where you make a green sauce and then you cook rice with it and you use either ground meat or tofu or a plant-based meat substitute. And you can make this really hearty, delicious one pot meal that has the herbs sort of infused throughout. And it's so delicious. It's so great. I mean, this is a book that I look forward to getting very messy. 
(laughs) (laughs) We would love that. We hope you spill lots of soup on it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This was delightful. That was Margaret Lee and Irene Lee. Margaret is the founder of Food Waste Feast. Irene is a 2022 James Beard Leadership Award winner. Their book is Perfectly Good Food, a Totally Achievable Zero Waste Approach to Home Cooking. Check out their illustrated chart for how to switch up your fridge door dressing on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Enjoy this lazy holiday weekend, and I'll meet you back here next week for a brand new episode of Good Food.